today on Soundtrack Alley, we're going to delve into one of Sam Raimi's lesser-known films, Darkman. It's a superhero, anti-hero film with Liam Neeson in the lead. It's a unique film, and the score is impressively done by Danny Elfman. Sit back and relax as the show begins now. Hello, I am your host, Randy Andrews. Today, we'll be talking about Darkman. Let's get into the background on it, shall we? Bill Paxton was almost cast as Peyton Westlake. According to Paxton, he told his friend Liam Neeson about the audition. When Neeson got the role, Paxton was so angry that he did not speak to Neeson for months. For the role of Darkman, Sam Raimi wanted someone who could play a monster with the soul of a man. Someone who could do all that beneath a lot of makeup. He also liked Liam Neeson's Gary Cooper charisma. Neeson was drawn to the operatic nature of the story and the inner turmoil of the character. To research the role, Neeson contacted the Phoenix Society, an organization that helped accident victims with severe disfigurements adjust to re-entering society. Liam Neeson worked 18 hours a day in 10-piece makeup, but he liked the challenge and the idea of working behind the mask on camera, as well as exploring the possibilities this entailed. Neeson also had to input on the costume he wore as Darkman, especially the cloak. The hardest part was speaking with false teeth, because he didn't want to move them at all. Director Sam Raimi wanted Bruce Campbell to take the lead role, but the producers were uncertain and that Campbell could handle the part, and Campbell made a small cameo at the very last scene instead. Originated from a short story by Sam Raimi that paid homage to universal horror films of the 1930s. And you can get that a lot from the film, even from the score. Sam Raimi originally wanted to base the movie on The Shadow and had to create the character of Darkman when he couldn't obtain the rights. In 06, Raimi tried again to make a Shadow film with Batman producer Michael Usland but the product never materialized. So Sam Raimi described his intent for the film to be like an ideal comic book, as dynamic and smashing as possible. The editing process was extremely difficult, though. The editor allegedly had a nervous breakdown and left the production. The Universal executives were also rather nervous with some of the wild things in the film, and insisted they be taken out. 
Sam Raimi confessed that studio movie making, as opposed to independent filmmaking, didn't fulfill him in the same way. However, Raimi attributed Universal's marketing campaign to Darkman's success at the box office. And unfortunately, it was a flop. Now, with the character, he drew inspiration from such things as The Hunchback of Notre Dame, The Phantom of the Opera, and The Elephant Man. Now, although his status as a star of the genre would solidify much later in his career, this was Liam Neeson's first starring role in an action film. And the production suffered from behind-the-scenes troubles. The screenwriting process was grueling, and there were lengthy post-production battles with the studio. Sam Raimi and Frances McDormand clashed because of creative differences. She was allegedly very difficult to direct. Sam Raimi said, Apparently, I didn't know Fran as well as I thought I did. The reason it was difficult was that our conception of the best movie to make differed, arguing to trying to make the best picture possible. We did come across some disagreements, but they were healthy. McDormand, however, looks back fondly on the film, and she and her husband, Joel Cohen, are still friends with Raimi. Now, in regard to this, Danny Elfman thoroughly enjoyed working with Raimi on this film, and he commented, Sam has a wonderful visual style that lends itself easily to music. There's no reason to hold back on this one. And the two, of course, would again collaborate in the future project with, of course, Spider-Man, Spider-Man 2, and they often would reunite, however, with Oz the Great and Powerful, as well as Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Now, the character Durant, who had a finger fetish, was derived from Raimi wanting the character to have a specific trademark, one that hinted at a military background, which would explain why Durant was proficient with a grenade launcher when he was firing it from the helicopter. The script went through 12 drafts in all. That's a lot. The reason because was because of the exploration of Peyton Darkman's arc over the course of the film. He decided to explore the man's soul. In the beginning, he was sympathetic and a sincere man. In the middle, he was vengeful and committing heinous acts against his enemies. And in the end, the man full of self-hatred for what he'd become, who must drift off into the night, into the world apart from everyone he knows and all the things he loves. So... This was a really important project for Sam Raimi to continue with his filming. Now, look-wise, Sam Raimi was interested in paying homage to the horror films. Uh, production designer Randy Sir remarked, If you look at Darkman's lab that he moves into, which is an old warehouse, what was on my mind was Dr. Frankenstein. There were a number of references visually to what we were thinking about it regarding the film. Now, Larry Drake was cast because of the way he underplayed Durant. Quiet, careful, but intense. 
and Raimi never watched a single episode of L.A. Law where Drake played the developmentally disabled Benny. But Drake's face reminded him of a modern-day Edward Robinson. He looked so mean and domineering, yet he had an urbane wit about him. Raimi believed these qualities made him the perfect adversary for Darkman. Raimi consciously wanted to tone down his style because of the desire to get into the characters' heads and follow them as real human beings in extraordinary circumstances. Now, Raimi also hired Chuck Farr as a writer based on his work at the, on, the Na- on Navy SEALs. He wrote the first draft, and then Raimi's brother, Ivan Raimi, who is a doctor, wrote drafts two through four with Sam. Now, this writing process went along several times. Uh, let's get back into discussing Liam Neeson for a minute. He was also preparing to play a bare-knuckle boxer in The Big Man to be shot in Scotland immediately after completion of Darkman. So he woke up at 3 a.m. every morning to train. Now, during the editing process uh, on the low-test preview scores, Darkman was cut down from roughly 2 hours to 85 minutes, which was probably a little bit better. Um, There were so many disfigurement things about Darkman that reminded him of the shadow, and he wanted something to be such as the living shadow, and that he was disfigured. Now, John Landis plays a cameo of a bearded mass physician with large glasses who observes the burn doctor's presentation of Westlake's grisly immolation aftermath. Landis would later reprise the role playing the same character in Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2 years later during the infamous hospital massacre scene as the doctor in whose glasses Doc Ock waking tentacle is reflected in before being killed by it. Now, of course, there were several cameos such as Bruce Campbell, Shemp Howard, Ethan Cohen, and Joel Cohen. And then Ivan, Raimi, and John Landis, of course. And then Jenny Aguter. Uh, let's get into the soundtrack for this film. Uh, long before Danny Elfman would team with Raimi, uh, he was already s- successful with Spider-Man and Spider-Man 2. And then there was Darkman. And... It was the start of the director-producer's fascination with comic book heroes. After the massive success of Batman in 89, both the fate of the comic book characters on the big screen and for Elfman in that genre, a significant number of other adaptions began to flow into theaters throughout the 90s. Interestingly, Darkman was one of the few not to be based on a historical character. Instead of visualizing an existing character, Raimi and a host of writers, of course, concocted the story that it was Dr. Peyton Westlake, a talented scientist experimenting with synthetic skin who is left for dead and badly mangled after Hitman destroys lab. In the process, Westlake's nerves are altered by doctors, and he achieves both superhuman strength and uncontrollable rage. Obsessed with the destruction of his enemies as well as the lost love of his girlfriend, 
Darkman goes about his revenge using his synthetic skin to assume multiple characters, including his former self. A nightmare of a picture, Darkman is as much a product of its gothic surroundings as Batman was, and it's no surprise whatsoever that Elfman was anxious to score the picture. At that period in Elfman's career, the composer wouldn't get enough morbid, tragic characters, and his music for these identities was usually as consistent as its symphonic depth as was is its success. While Darkman isn't as well known as Batman or Edward Scissorhands, the themes contain many of the same basic structures that Elfman fans have come to love from the morbidly tragic scores from the period of Elfman's work. Darkman kind of suffers from the effect of using the table scraps from other scores. Uh, the composer was still attempting to broaden his technical proficiency at writing lengthy cues, and his music from these years sometimes struggled at approach similar topics from different directions. In the case of Darkman, the score is reminiscent of Batman Returns, in that the underlying composition deserved a far more vibrant performance and recording. Now, everything about Darkman is saturated with the same dense, dark, and determined styles that made Batman a classic such the previous year. But like Dick Tracy, another 1990s comic-style score for Elfman, Darkman is less coherent and more heavily reliant on different styles uh, over the substance of the thematic ideas. Uh, Much of the phenomenon relates to the underlying rhythmic movement of the march that Elfman utilizes for the main titles and the related waltz, which becomes more evident in The Plot Unfolds. The title theme, dominated by a pair of nearly identical four-note phrases, offers all the fascinating desolation and hopeless suffering that we can hope for in the story. And Elfman weaves this theme into his score with dexterity, especially in the short but haunting Julie Discovers Darkman. The darkness of the main theme is reminiscent of Spider-Man, as well as lures of Batman from the year earlier. But the deep brass really sells the main theme for me. The plot unfolds, really illustrates the strong piano tones, and the low brass of elements along with the strong percussion instruments. I love how the cue develops, and you're swept into the score brilliantly. In this whole element, Julie discovers Darkman ends this suite and shows the love she has for her boyfriend, and how much he's embarrassed and ashamed for her to see him like this. She notes it after not seeing him from the fire. It's illustrated well with the organ and strings, weaving this amazing and lyrical melody of melancholy and tragic love. Let's listen as the suite plays.
A separate love theme struggles to assert itself in the first half of the score, and is eventually overtaken by agonizingly tortured string renditions of the main theme. The suspense and action underscore is highly reminiscent of the motifs used throughout Batman with high steel combining the bubbling timpani, rapid trumpet blast, and abundant cymbal crashes and snare rips together with rolling brass string motifs very similar to action sequences in the earlier work. While this music is entertaining at the basic level, its continued obvious use here makes Darkman perhaps the most uh, observed uh, comparison to other scores that Elfman has made. Now, High Steel really gives us some strong elements of deep brass and clashes of cymbals, as well as the hint of the Batman theme, giving us the hero theme for Darkman. Let's hear this.
some of this material was destined for better expression in The Nightmare Before Christmas. The best arrangement of this music exists in Beetlejuice, uh, such as like Woe, The Dark Man Woe, uh, sometimes is accessed as a concert piece from the score. Two standout cues distinguish themselves from the continuous reuse, both Rage and Peppy Science and Carnival from Hell which play to the carnival atmosphere of the film, which the latter cue serving as an almost uh, unique interpretation of the Calliope music by Elfman, though he uses it with full chaos and a full symphony to really show the strange and horrific swing to the cue. Woe, Dark Man, Woe really gives us some lot and some tragic hero moments for the album. And I love how Elfman plays with his organ and really highlights his roots as well. There is actually a two-part cue, including Rage and Peppy Science. And these show the chaotic material Elfman provides, giving us some four gleams of future albums, including some amazing carnival work he knows how to play with. Carnival from Hell is brilliant and really seems to highlight the struggle that Darkman is having on reality and how his rage is slowly progressing and how it's taking him over. Let's listen to the suite.
There's a touch of Christopher Young's Hellraiser influence here as well. In retrospect, it's very easy for Darkman to slip through the cracks in Elfman's career. This brings us to another end of Soundtrack Alley. The last cue I'll play is the finale and end credits suite. It's shorter in length, but we'll at least get some 15 seconds longer from the theatrical release. It's a tragic story of an anti-hero whose flaws develop and create a horrid rage monster, but someone with a deep heart as well. This illustrates the tragedy of Elfman's scores and how brilliantly he can write. We hear elements of Edward Scissorhands and some of his later work in this. I hope you've enjoyed the show today. I'd like to thank Alexander Shebel for composing Soundtrack Alley's theme music. You can find his work at xanderscores.com. You can email me at soundtrackalley at gmail.com for comments or questions or a film recommendation you might like me to cover on the show. Check out my programming over at Cinematic Sound Radio with the essential soundtracks as well as Anime Spectacular. So until next time, take care and happy listening.
thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley. If you are an Apple podcast, please give the show a five-star rating. Check out the content over at SoundtrackAlley.com, as well as Cinematic Sound Radio, where most of my new material is posted. If you have a comment, question, or concern, please email me at SoundtrackAlley at gmail.com. 